And please open your Bibles with me to our, the same text or the same, almost the same place to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we spent two sermons looking at unbelief. And I was wrestling this afternoon because that's sort of a, it's a convicting text and it's not always the most encouraging and, and the text that we're going to look at this evening is, can leave us in some ways a little beat up. It's not my desire to just beat us up. I'm just following the text. I'm just going to move on this evening and uh, we're going to look at uh, verses 30 through 37. Mark 9, 30 through 37. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had discussed which one of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Verses 30 through 32 are very important for the context. This is the second time that Jesus Christ has prophesied, prophesied his death to his disciples. In the previous time when Jesus prophesied his death, uh, Peter took him aside and it says that he began to rebuke Jesus for such talk, for such foolish talk. And Peter, uh, to his own shock, was immediately rebuked by his master with the words, get behind me, Satan. And perhaps it is for this reason that now as Jesus prophesies again to his disciples of what awaits him, it says that they were afraid to ask him what he meant. Why were they afraid? We already know that they understood what Jesus meant because Peter had rebuked Jesus for such talk in the past. It's not an issue of him not understanding. In fact, the Greek text says that he was ignorant. They're ignorant, but they cannot be ignorant of what Jesus means. Why are they afraid? And I believe that the reason that these men were afraid to ask Jesus is not because they were afraid of the sufferings that awaited Jesus. I'm not sure at this point if they were even afraid of the sufferings that were perhaps awaiting them. I really think that the reason that they were afraid is because of what the death of Jesus would mean for their own future and their own glory. And the reason I say that is because of the story that immediately follows. Verses 30 through 32 are really to set up a context of an important lesson that all of us need this evening. Because it is immediately after this, it is immediately after their discussion 
And Jesus prophesy that they are going on the way back to the house and Jesus has a question for them. What were you discussing on the way? As if he didn't know. It is the same as when I walk into the room. My children, I don't know what they're going. To, it's kind of a quiet in the room. I was open the door. What are you guys doing? And all of a sudden, it's like absolute silence. Not a good sign, right? And Jesus asks his disciples, what were you discussing on the way? Not a word. Twelve disciples, not one single answer. And the reason is because of what they were discussing. The content matter was extremely humiliating and embarrassing. Because on the way they had discussed which one of them was the greatest. They were quiet because Jesus asked them what they were discussing. And to their shame, they did not say, Jesus, we were talking about how awesome you are. We were talking about how humbled we were by the lesson you taught us this afternoon when you rebuked us for our unbelief. And even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, you revealed to us again your power. They weren't discussing on the way back how, man, Peter, can you hold me accountable? My unbelief is just getting the best of me. No. They were promoting themselves and seeking to be the greatest among the twelve. I'm almost convinced that this, this is a reason why I wouldn't believe the Bible. You know, people say, I don't believe the Bible, all the miracles and all this stuff. I say, you know what? If there's a believe, reason for me to, to, to doubt the Bible, it's like, how could these guys have seen everything that Jesus was doing and then immediately after walk on the way and talk about how great they were? Is this true? Well, you know how we know it's true? Because we're the same. We're exactly the same. From the NBA to the IRS to the Republicans to the Democrats to this preacher to that preacher, there is in the heart of every man and woman on the face of the earth a desire that wants to be the greatest and that wants to be first. This is not something that only the disciples are guilty of. This is not something that only they can be rebuked for. This is something that is in your hearts, and this is something that's in my heart. We are all guilty of either thinking that we are the best, or we are all guilty of wanting to be the best. There are those who are the best in some things they do, and they want everything and everyone to know it. And there are some people who want to be the best and are willing to do whatever it takes in order to be there. And there are other people who know they will never be the best and so they spend the rest of their lives saddened and discouraged that they won't have the opportunity to be the best. And to all of us tonight, Jesus Christ calls our attention to look at who is the best, who is the greatest, what is the solution to this struggle in all of our hearts. We are so apt to use what Jesus has given us to promote ourselves. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7, Who regards you as superior? 
What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And so tonight as we evaluate our lives, if you have brains, if you have talents, if you have money, if you have beauty, if you have athleticism, we must ask, who has given them, who has given these gifts to us, and why has he given them to us? Because, brothers and sisters, he has not given them to us so that we would be the best. And this is why Christ gives us the lesson that he gave the disciples. It was because of what they were discussing that he gives them really a, a, a real-life illustration. He teaches them and he illustrates in a very simple way his teaching. Look again at verse 35. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, if anyone wants to be the best, if anyone wants to be the greatest, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, I want you to see that this, this could be taken as a, um, a judgment. We could take it as a, a condemnation that Jesus is saying, you want to be first? Okay, because of that sin, you will end up being last. You will be kicked to the back of the line. You will not receive what you're wanting. It's possible to take it that way, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think that what Jesus is, is doing here is speaking about discipleship in a broad text context and in a, in a smaller context, specifically for these 12, I think he's speaking about leadership. By what Jesus says, he reveals to us two important elements of the disciple or of the leader. The position of the leader and the practice of the leader. Those are the two main things we're going to see this evening. The position of the leader, or you can put disciple in there, or the practice of the leader. So number one, the position of the leader. What is the position of the leader? What is the place that he has among those around him? Jesus says very clearly, last. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last. This is the position of being first. In contrast to the position of the world, the mindset of a disciple, of a leader, of a shepherd, of a pastor, is not how far up the ranks he can go, but how low he can go, how low he can become. To be first in the world means to stand above all others. To be first in the kingdom of Christ means to be below all others. And it's important for us to understand in this context why Jesus needs to teach his disciples this important lesson. He is training the 12 men who are going to have the greatest authority and power on the face of the earth. Look, the greatest authority and power that sinful men have ever had is not casting out demons. It's not healing the sick, and it's not raising the dead. The greatest authority that any man can have on the face of the earth is to be a minister and a leader of the people of Jesus Christ. President Obama, he will be held accountable for his leadership. Senators, governors, mayors, and all in authority, they will be held accountable for their leadership. But there is an infinitely higher accountability for those who minister and lead the bride of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is about to hand 
over the church, his bride, purchased with his blood, into the hands of these 12 hillbillies. Into the hands of these, these 12, what word do I use for these guys? They're, 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 they're acting like children. Who is the greatest? They're, they're, this is like being at an NBA dunk contest, you know, two white guys sitting there, and you're arguing who can jump the highest, Right? <laughs> And Jesus says, we don't have time for this. I'm about to hand the church, my bride, to you. You need to understand what it means to be great in the kingdom. Because they were not ready for authority. And at this point, if they would have been given any authority, they would have destroyed the church and they would have destroyed themselves. If there is anything we learn from the leaders of this world, it is that power not only corrupts, it destroys like the Lord of the Rings, as soon as a man gets power, it just begins to eat him and it twists him and it conforms him and it changes him and it turns him into a beast. And we were talking the other day, talking with some leaders, just how many men have we seen in the ministry that have been disqualified, not because of adultery, but because of pride. 3 John, verse 9, I wrote something, John says, I wrote something to the church but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. He had a high position in the church. He had authority in the church. And what did he do? He used it as a platform, as a podium to exalt himself, to lift up himself before the church. Glorify me, he was saying. He became a dictator in the church. He thought he was first. He thought he deserved his power and authority. And instead of using his authority and his power to minister and to lead and to exalt others, to minister to others, he became just like the world. And Jesus looks into the heart of his disciples. He hears their conversations and he sees the exact same thing in them. His disciples are acting like Donald Trump. They cannot handle the power. And Jesus says that power is given to you for one purpose. You will be last. You will be given power for the purpose of serving others. And that is why he says in, in the second part, what is the practice of a leader? The practice of a leader. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last. That is his position. And what is his practice? It is to serve. He will be the servant of of all, the Greek word diakonos, right? The one, the, the waiter, the one who serves the tables of others. A Christian leader is not a king. He is not a president. He is not a pope. The real, true Christian leader is a man or woman who serves, who uses what God has given him or her for the benefit of others around him. And when the human heart forgets who gave him his authority and why, he will begin to use that for himself. When he forgets who has given him that power and why he has received it, it will radically change him. He will become like Nebuchadnezzar. He will look out upon the people that he has to lead and serve and he will say, look at this kingdom that I have established by my might and by my power. And that power will turn even the greatest preacher into a wild beast when he forgets who has given him his power and his authority and why.
And the fact is that every single one of us, to some extent, has some power, has some authority. Whether you're a pastor or an elder, whether you're a husband, a wife, whether you're a brother or a sister, a friend or a relative, all of us have some sort of authority. All of us have some sort of influence. And the question is, what are we using it for? What are we doing with it? And when we forget who has given it to us and why he has given it to us, we will be ruined and we will ruin others. And so Jesus says, you have been given this for the sake of serving others, for waiting on tables, for washing feet, a lesson he will later teach them. So Jesus gives to his disciples in those words their position and their practice. And then what he does is he uses a real-life illustration to illustrate those two truths, their position and their practice. Verse 36 and verse 37. And taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me but him who sent me. Jesus uses this little child to illustrate the position and the practice of a leader. Taking a child, he set him before them. He set the child up front. Now, Jesus does this for illustrative purposes because that's not what we usually do. There are important reasons, good reasons, why there is not a child up here this evening preaching the Word of God. Uh, there are reasons, good reasons, why children are not leading the Church of Christ. But in a practical sense, even you know, when, we're, when we're, we're gathered you know, and, and, and the guys are gathered after the service and we're talking, you know, usually it's the guys there, it's the, the holy huddle, the men are there, maybe the women are over here, they're talking about crochet, and the men are over here, and they're talking about basketball or whatever, and Who's not in the center? Junior. He's not there. Maybe he crawls in between his dad's legs. He's got his head. He's peeking in. He's kind of looking in. But he's not really a part of the conversation. And he's definitely not the center of attention. But what Jesus does here is he takes this little child, very possible Peter's son, and he, he takes him and he sets him before the disciples. I think it's kind of awkward. I, I, you know, Mark doesn't give us a whole lot of... A lot of details, but he just says it's taking a child, he set him before them. I mean, in the Greek, he set the child down, and it's like he steps back. And the disciples are just like, like, what's going on? And then, Jesus does something else. With this, he is seeking to show the disciples of who is really important. Who is really dear and why they have been given the authority they have been given? He said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he should be last of all and servant of all. And then he takes the child. The 12 men have been arguing, who is the greatest? Every man thinking that he should be the center. Every man thinking that Jesus should pick him up and put him up front. And Jesus, instead of going to one of the 12, goes and he picks up a little child and says, Here's the greatest. Here is who is most important. My sheep. Not you. Not you who will have authority. Not you who will be up front. Not you who men will be tempted to praise. No. The little ones. My sheep. 
He grabs the little one, and before all of the grown ones, he says, here is the one who is most important. Brothers and sisters, men and women, this is what Christ would do for us this evening. He comes to Marcus Denny, and he brings the littlest, the most insignificant of my congregation, and he says, is this who is most important? To husbands, he, he comes to you this evening, he, he brings your wife before you, and he looks into your eyes, and he says, is she what is most important? Even to mothers, he brings your little children before you. Are they what is most important? And don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not confusing this. Yes, Christ is, is most important. But we cannot, we cannot at this moment touch him. We cannot at this moment wash his feet. We cannot at this moment anoint his head with oil. So whose head do we anoint? Whose feet do we wash? Here it is. And Jesus says to me and to all of us, you're not it. You're not the center. And by that he says, Yes, you're bigger. Yes, you have some authority and some power. And it has been given to you for one reason and for one reason only, and that is to exalt the weak. That is to exalt those that are below you. Not to use them as a podium, not to use them to, to, to use their wool to make yourself a nice coat, but to serve the sheep, to minister to the sheep, to love the sheep. But it does not end there. He doesn't say anything. He sits this little child in there, and I think he waits for them to try to wonder what in the world is Jesus doing. And then he picks the child up in his arms. He picks up this little child in his arms to show them the practice of the disciple, the practice of the leader. In the Greek, the way that the the verb is constructed and, and, and displayed is that he was embracing this little child. Big, strong, masculine Jesus with these, some of them burly fishermen, and he's just picking up this little child, and he's holding the disciples, and holding this child before the disciples. And then he says in verse 37, Whoever receives one child, one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. And so he just continues to go on explaining This is how we must treat those that we are leading and shepherding and ministering to. Jesus picks up his little child and says by this, this is how you are to be with my church. This is how you are to be with the wife that I have given you, my daughter. This is how you are to be with the little ones that I have given to you for a few short years on this earth. This is not a story about children. This is a story about those in authority with power and influence. And this is how we are to minister to those that God has given to us. And in verse 37, he says, Whoever receives one child like this in my name, who does he receive? He says, He receives me. Jesus says by this, very simplistically, that the way that we treat others, the way that we treat the people that God has brought us to serve is the way that we're treating Christ himself. 
when we reject a Christian or use our authority in order to exalt ourselves over others, by what Christ is saying is that we are exalting ourselves over him. And this is why this text is so frightening. When we use our authority to exalt ourselves before and above others, we are exalting ourselves over the Savior. And this text is so important because what Jesus teaches is completely antithetical to the thinking of the world. Completely antithetical to the teaching of the world. I confess, as I was at the coast, I watched the Republican debate. Right? And to me, it's just like, I know, okay, I understand I'm the same, I understand I'm, I'm proud, but it's just so almost embarrassing to me. These men stand up front. It's almost, it's almost humiliating, I feel like, to them. They have to stand up front, and to hundreds and thousands of viewers, they have to tell everyone why they're the greatest. The goal of a presidential debate is to share with everyone else, to prove everyone else, I am the greatest. Vote for me because I'm number one and I'm the best. And if you do so, you won't be disappointed. What Jesus teaches to these people, to the disciples and to us, is completely the opposite of how the Christian ought to live in the world. There is no self-promotion. And yet the history of the world is filled with that one thing. Self-promotion. Use my authority for myself. We were reading uh, with our children, you know, before bedtime, before Bible time, we were reading this uh, four-volume, it's called The Story of the World. It's an, it's an awesome uh, overview of world history. And it starts at the beginning. And what do we see from the beginning? One man kills another man. And you read in the history of Genesis, you know, one man kills another man, and then another man kills another man, and then Lamech kills another man, and he threatens to kill other men. And this man, he kills some other men, takes his stuff, takes his wives, takes his children, makes his hut a little bigger, and then he goes and kills another man and takes his wives, takes his children, takes his hut. Pretty soon he's got a little village, and that village goes and destroys another village and swallows that up, and then it's just village by village, and pretty soon there's a town. This is history. And then that town is in at war with another town, and finally that town busts its walls down and takes that town, and now it's a city, and then that city goes and fights another city and takes that city, and then it's a nation, and then it's Britain moving into India and, and moving into China and, and Russia trying to take away Japan and Japan trying to take away China and China trying to take away Mongolia. The history of the world is really the heart of man seeking to swallow up another man. We read one story of uh, two kings that were at war. And one king went in and he attacked uh, this other kingdom and slaughtered hundreds of people, burned the, their houses down, and he left. Other king got word of it. He went back and he attacked this other kingdom. And he, instead of killing thousands, he went in with his soldiers and he plucked out the eyes of thousands and thousands of people. Horrible left them to rot and to die, to be able to do nothing. And we read about the Holocaust in our, in, our, in our day and age, and we think, this is just horrible. This is, brothers and sisters, you read history, and it's been going on for thousands of years. What you and I are living on, it's just a, it's a paradox. It's a phenomenon. 
Because the history of the world is filled with blood and death and destruction. And in the midst of a nation that is being destroyed by the Romans, at this time over 14,000 Jews had been crucified on crosses by the Romans. And Jesus says, this is not why you are being given power. It is not to dominate. It is to serve. And Jesus must teach us this lesson because power destroys. From Putin to the Taliban, every, from the most liberal to the most conservative, everyone wants power and they want authority for themselves. So how do we end this evening? Try to tie it up here. We fight harder. Do we look in the mirror and just convince ourselves that we're not as good as we think we are? What will bring about humility? What will bring about lasting change in our thinking? And the simple solution is that the disciples are standing before the very answer. The same answer that was faithful and sufficient 2,000 years ago is the same answer that is faithful and sufficient this evening. As we look at the history of the world, as we look even at church history, and we see the failures of so many men, and then we look at Jesus Christ, servant, savior, sovereign. Jesus Christ is the ultimate king. He is the most powerful king in the universe. Power to make stones into bread. Power to bring life from death. Power to read minds and to search hearts. Jesus Christ had unimaginable power. Remember what I said last night? If you could, if you could create a grain of sand, if you could heal a headache, what power? Jesus Christ had power beyond belief. Power be, unimaginable. What would Putin do if he had that kind of power? What would Obama do if they had that kind of power? What would the Democratic Party do? What would the Republican Party do? It would be insane if Osama bin Laden had an ounce of the power that Jesus Christ has. This world at this moment would be in total hell. What would happen if your ex-boyfriend had this kind of power? What would happen if your ex-spouse had this kind of power? What would happen if your toddler had this kind of power? What would happen if you had this power? And brothers and sisters, to answer that question, all you need to do is ask what you've done with the power you have. What, what have we done with the authority we've already been given? All of us were saved out of such sinfulness and pride and arrogance, ruining our lives and ruining the lives of others. Man cannot handle power. He cannot handle fame. He cannot handle money. And if any man had the kind of power that Jesus had, he would become Satan. 
And you see, it is not simply the power of Jesus that proves that he is God. It is not simply the power of Jesus that causes us to worship. It's what he did with it. It's what Jesus did with his power. That he is hungry. That he is starving in the wilderness. And he has power to make stones into bread and yet he will not do it. He is tired and he is exhausted from hours and days of ministry and he has not had a second. Come on, just use a bit of your power, just zap yourself, energy drink, and you're good to go. No. He is asleep in a boat. He is so exhausted that he's ready to drown with the disciples. He's so out. And now he's hanging upon a cross. Suffering and bleeding and facing the full unbridled wrath of God. You saved others. Save yourself. And yet Christ, with all of his power, did not use it to save himself. But he used all of his power, every ounce of it to save you and to save me he did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for so many we are tempted to use our authority for ourselves but we must look to Jesus our Lord and Savior as our example to fight the evil beast that is in within all of us Jesus picked up this child in his arms, and this is exactly what he does to us. Instead of serving him, instead of giving him the glory and the honor that he deserved, we robbed him. We robbed him of his honor. We robbed him of his glory. We robbed him of his praise. To him who is naturally the center, we tried to cast out. To he who is the creator and owner of it all, we tried to dethrone And in all of his power, what did he do? Did he come? Did he, did he torture us? Did he stone us? Did he burn us? Did he crucify us? Did he gouge out our eyes and leave us to rot? No. He opened our eyes. He opened them. And essentially upon the cross, Jesus Christ, he picked us up into his arms the wrath of God coming down upon us. The wrath of God directed at us. Psalm 7, he has bent his bow and he has made it ready. And the Father is ready to unleash his righteous, furious indignation. And in that moment, Christ comes and he picks us up and he turns around and he shields us from the wrath of the Father. And he takes the full force of it upon himself. This is why we worship Jesus Christ. This is why we work so hard this evening, even when we're tired, even when we're distracted. This is why we work so hard to be attentive. Because Jesus Christ is the ultimate servant. He is the ultimate savior and he is the sovereign. And so so the solution to our pride this evening is so simple. It is once again to look to Jesus Christ. It is once again to be mindful that even this evening, his desire is to pick us up. 
He knows what is in the heart of Marcus Denny. He knows what is in the heart of every man and woman and child in here. And yet, in his grace and mercy, he picks us up. He picks us up into his arms. He embraces us. And he says again, let me serve you. Let me serve you. I will take away your sin. I will take away your pride. Confess what you have done. And I will be merciful to you. Let us worship this great Savior. Let us live for this great Savior. And let us be mindful that all of us have been given some authority and some position that we might serve this great Savior by caring for his little ones. May God help us. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for dying upon the cross. Thank you for never using your power to serve yourself. We do not simply worship you this evening because you had power. So many men have power. Satan has power. Demons have power. But we will not bow to them and we will not worship them because they use everything that even ultimately God the Father gave them to exalt themselves and to serve themselves. We will worship you and we will bow to you because you used all of your authority and all of your power to serve us, to wash our feet, to wash away our sins. We kiss your feet this evening, we kiss the ring. We anoint your head with our tears. We love you and we thank you. And we again confess our allegiance to you. Oh Lord, please help us from exalting ourselves before you. Please help us from exalting ourselves above others. Thank you so much for your example. And thank you so much that you now live in us so that we might live the way that you lived. We love you and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.